The 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. So I've had the opportunity for two weeks now to study, read, and pray through that last of Matthew chapter 5 on loving your enemies and praying for, your, uh, for those who persecute you. And over the two weeks of studying and reading and praying and reading and studying, I've, just, I've been just overwhelmed by that command to love your enemy. Let me say that again. Love your enemy. To pray for your persecutor. And I'm just overcome with the magnitude of those words. When you think about that word enemy, when you think about that word persecutor, how heavy those truly are. And then you contrast that with how we are to treat them. To love and to pray for. And I've seen this as a great challenge for us as professing believers. As people who say we are Christians. I see it as a caution for us that when we hear Jesus' words that we don't just hear them in vain. That we don't read them and nod our head. That we don't read them and verbally shout amen. But that as we read the words of Jesus, as we read these commands of Christ that are in Matthew 5, that are throughout Scripture, specifically with the the intent of what our passage is to love our enemy that we don't just agree with what we say or a head nod but we agree with how we live that our life reflects that we agree with Jesus and that, I'm probably going to refer to this song a couple times today Why should I gain from His reward? I want to ask you this morning, have you gained from the death of Christ? Have you gained from the... And I'm not asking it rhetorically. I want you to consider. Have you received a gift from the death of the Son of God? Do you proclaim that as your own? Now imagine receiving a gift from the hand of a dying person. Imagine receiving a gift that was of great value. And it brought upon the death of the person that was giving you that gift. Would you name your son or daughter after them? 
Would you write up a memorial for their sake? Would you swear to never forget them? We have gained from the death of the Son of God through His love on the cross. And He calls us to follow Him. He calls us to follow Him in obedience. And when we claim we follow Jesus, that means our life should begin to look like His. That we're just not agreeing with what He said and receiving what He has done in vain, but that we have agreed with what He has said, we have received what He has done in faith, and therefore have been transformed by that gift. And we follow in obedience, in hopes, not in a hope that is uncertain, but a hope in knowing that we are being made more like Him who has died in our place. So I, I, I have been cautious, um, and maybe it's just uh, God pressing in upon me, my shortcomings in obedience. But I did not want to go into this command of loving enemies and persecuting or in praying for our persecutors with a small outlook on the love of God. Christ, or as Paul said, it is the love of God that compels him, that presses him on to strain forward, to make what is his, what has not yet been made. And so I want us today, before we jump into what Jesus has said in this command, but to take a step back and to look at this love. We consider the, the summary of the law. We consider the two greatest commands given. And what are they based in? Love. Love. What do we know of God? That He is love. What does He promise to never separate us from but the love of Christ? This is no small topic. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful as we see Jesus talking to this crowd, the Pharisees and the Jews there, and, and, and judge them, condemn them for their hypocrisy, for their lack of uh, understanding of the Word of God, for their twisting of the Scripture. Because we today, we have a different type of hypocrisy We agree with the words, but that we do not live them out. We say we love our enemy, but in, when we press ourselves, do we? These words have become dull to us. They've become dull to me. 
So with that said, I want to come at this passage through the back door or maybe the long way around. And I want us to talk about the love of God through Christ. The saving love of God upon the cross. The magnitude of this command to love, just in general, to love is so great. To me, it, it is on par with the magnitude of what we have experienced in the love of Christ. And so if we come at, if we underestimate the love of Christ, if we underestimate the gospel, not that we forsake it or deny it, but that we gently set it aside as we live the rest of our life. And if we gently set aside the gospel, the love of Christ that has come to us, we will fail in following. We will fail in our obedience. Because the love of Christ is what compels us. What presses us. What motivates us. And so this morning, I want us to start in 1 John and the first two things, my first two points that I want us to consider. Number one, I want us to be reminded that God is love. I want us to be reminded that God is love and then I want to follow that up with what does God's love look like? So 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Let us, let's read... Let's read this full passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might have uh, so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another no one has ever seen god if we love one another god abides in us and his love is perfected in us by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we, we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he cannot see, or whom, who, for who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me read that again. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So let's start back in verse 7. And I just want to walk through a few things here to remind us God is love. Number one, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So the origin of love, where does it come from? It comes from Yahweh. It comes from our Creator. It comes directly from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. So God is... We say, he's, we say God is love, but what do we know? What do we understand? That God is infinite. God is eternal. He always has been. God did not create love. That would be saying that God had to create a portion of Himself that did not exist. Love has existed forever. Love has existed forever. God is the wellspring of love. All people are made in the image of God, and so therefore what? They know love. They can understand it. They can even show it and experience love. It is, it is something we have received in being made like in the image of God. Now, but there's a distinction, though, that we must understand in verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So there is a distinction between love, between a, a, a husband and a wife who are unbelievers, who may love one another till the day they die. And we can give thanks to God for even unbelieving spouses who love one another to the day they die. Do you know why? Because God has loved them in a way that allowed them to experience and show something of Himself to each other. It's called His common grace. Even the unbeliever can experience and show love to some degree. But the love that John writes about goes further than that. When he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, he's specifically talking to a believer. He's specifically talking to someone who has been born again. We could call it born again love. And where does that love come from? It comes directly from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit that abides in believers. So here... As I refer back to our song, do you say you have gained 
from His reward? Do you say you have gained from His death? If the answer is yes, then the Spirit of God should dwell in you. And you should have a love that goes beyond anything that you can describe. The love of God should dwell in you. So let's keep that in mind as we read on here. Verse 8. The opposite of what I just said. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. So if we say we have gained from His reward, yet we are not ones who are very lovable. We may have a problem. God is love. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. Now I want you to know that that word manifest, just replace it with Known. K-N-O-W-N. We'll just replace it with known so we make sure we understand it. And this the love of God was made known. To who? Among us. Who is the us? The church. It was made known to us the love of God. How do you know the love of God? How do you know that you know the love of God? Well, Paul tells, tells the Romans that the love of God has been poured out into us by the Holy Spirit. That we've experienced the love of God. That we know it just not because we have heard it and therefore it, we've retained that information. But he says the love of God has been poured into you, believer, you have experienced it. Now we don't, we don't base our faith. We do not base our understanding. We're not a church who lives based on experience. Because experiences will, will fool us. Will trick us. But we can know. We can know. That too. Know the love of God. You have had an experience. You have felt the love of God. That is what it is to know the love of God. And yet we do have an understanding in our minds. A renewed mind takes in and understands what God has done. How He has loved us. It's a combination of knowing with your mind and experiencing in your heart the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest, made known among us. So how did He make it known? That God sent His only Son into the world. Now that's a statement, and that's a good statement, but the two words that follow, at least in my translation, really bring it home. That God sent His only Son into the world so that. So that. 
There's a purpose. There's an intent. So that we might live through Him. That we might live through Him. Here is this song again. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Do you know the next word? Ashamed. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And yet, you live. You live in this life and you have eternal life through the wounds, through the death of His Son. This is love. That God sent His Son, His only Son, so that we might live through Him. You know, we, we look at the Old Testament. We see Israel. We see in Deuteronomy that to live against God brings about curse. To live in disobedience brings about judgment and death. And I'm telling you, to walk out of here or to walk anywhere and say, I have bypassed the judgment of God because I believe and then live your life as if nothing is different, nothing has changed. To state that you live based on the Son of God And yet, when you hear the words of Jesus, they just roll right off your back. We cannot make that proclamation. We cannot live. That is is living, and I believe Brother Dan has said this, that is living upon a life, that is a statement. Your life is a statement of using the Lord's name in vain. It is a... Paul... Paul tells us in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. When we make a proclamation about the reward we have gained from the love of Christ and we live like the world, our lives are not a living sacrifice, but a living living act of profaning the name of God. The exact opposite. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, you're not sure what it means? It means God is angry at sin, at our sin. And He's to judge that sin with that anger. And His wrath is to pour out upon us for that sin. But Christ is the propitiation. mean He absorbed it. He took it. He took the judgment of our sin. What is love? That is love. He is the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This is a reminder that God is love. Now, what, number two, what does God look like? Two words. Sorry, did I say what? God, what does God look like? Sorry, what does God's love look like? Two words. Humble and hard. Humble and hard. And I have two passages to help us to think through this. Let's start in Philippians chapter 2. What we read this morning as our call to worship. As we consider humility, as we consider the the humbleness of the love of God, we have to consider what Christ has done. Now here, Philippians 2. Now if it's in your heart, in your mind, you might be stating... We know this. We agree with this. Can we talk about something else? I would ask you the question. If someone gave you riches beyond imagination, would you ever get tired of those riches? If you walked into your bank tomorrow and found $2 million dollars, Would you at some point stop going and withdrawing from that bank account? Would you get tired of that wealth, of the value that is in that account? The kingdom of heaven, the love of God, is more valuable than anything we could ever imagine. Two million dollars wouldn't touch it. $200 million wouldn't touch it. We never get tired of taking hold of the value that's in this world and spending it and using it. And so I wonder, do you value Jesus and His love that much? And I would say if you knew His love, then that value would reflect the love that you know. We can never get tired of talking about the cross. We can never get tired of talking about the blood of Christ. We can never get tired of talking about the forgiveness of sins. Because without them, what is there to talk about? What's the point? And remember that it is the word of the cross That is the power for those who are being saved. And for those who are not, it is foolishness. I'm going to repeat that. It is the power, it is the word of the cross that is power to those who are being saved. And for those who are not being saved, it is foolishness. And to say, no, I believe it. That's not saying you think it's foolish or not foolish. But to not love it, 
to not desire it, you might as well say it's foolishness. So let's look at let's look at this foolishness that we preach. Philippians 2. And remember, we're approaching this from an understanding of why should we love our enemy? Why? This is the reason. Philippians 2, verse 1. We'll go through this quick. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So church, we want to be of the same mind, and this is it. Having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look only to his self-interest, but also to the interest of others. So, you want to... Paul's telling the church, count others more significant than yourself. Here's what we're doing. We're defining love right now. We're defining it. Okay? Count others more significant than yourself. Here's the problem that we have, and here's what he's addressing. If you think highly of yourself, you become so big, you can't see the others for you to love them. Their their needs are so far below you, you can't see them. Humility. That's... This is the example that Paul is coming at. If we are to love people, especially our enemy, we have to come in a position that isn't above them. We can't come at them as if we are greater than them. But we come at them low and humble. We live our lives in this position so that we can see others' needs We can know what's going on. He said, humble yourself. Humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, there's a... We have to be careful because we can also live too low to some degree. We can be so self-deprecating. Woe is me. That what we're, I'm not this, I'm so bad, I'm not good enough, I, am, I, can't, I can't do this. Do you know what I just said, the word that was said the most in that statement? I. I. And so even in this self, self-deprecating false humility, all we're really doing is being concerned with ourself. So we could push ourselves too low and we could have our nose in the dirt, pushing our own nose to the dirt and saying, I, I'm not good enough. And then therefore we cannot help. We cannot see. We cannot serve. We cannot love. And the same is, it's the same problem. It's pride. It's pride. The pride exalts the, 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 the haughty and the, over, the, the false humility. It's also an issue of pride. And so when we, have, when we think too much of ourselves... We cannot love others. We cannot even love our, our, our brother, our neighbor. 
let alone our enemy. Now let's just read through the rest of this. So he, he, he calls us to love one another, to consider others more significant. Now how hard... This is, this is what I'm trying to get at. He's telling the church in Philippi to count their brothers, the fellow believers, more significant than themselves. Now I'm about to tell you from Jesus' words to do that to your enemy. Do that to the one who spits on you, who runs your name into the ground. This is not, this is not possible within ourselves unless we be compelled by the love of Christ. We will be proud and haughty and care about no one, even in false humility, even in false practice of love, we would still be in the back of our mind looking for reward, looking for gain, looking to be served within ourselves. And so what does He do? He just gives us again the love of Christ. Verse 5, Have this mind among you. Remember, this understanding of love is humility, is, is humbleness. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So all you have to understand in that sentence is, he is higher than anyone. Consider Jesus higher than anyone. But verse 7, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And how did he do it? This is a what I have termed a holy insult to you and I. This verse 7 is a holy insult to us as people. How did God humiliate Himself? Please hear this. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. God humiliated Himself by becoming like us. What should that do? That should humble us. It should knock us down a peg or two. But it should increase our understanding of the love of God. Now imagine, I mean, we don't have servants, slaves today. But who do we put our nose up to? We wouldn't. It, the reason why there's so much, well, there's more reasons. But the reason why we, you see so many for wanted signs throughout towns is because people don't want to lower themselves and take this job or that. They're unwilling to work a humble job. You see, Christ didn't look at us and say, I'm not going there. I'm not... I, he, he didn't say, I'm unwilling to put on flesh and be as low as these human beings. He took upon our likeness and became a servant. He was found in human form 
And then he went a step further. God, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you would think if Jesus decided, you know what, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do it, I'm going to lower myself, I'm going to humble myself, but hey, I'm the Son of God, so I could do it and, you know, I don't have to die. I don't have to suffer. I could have a mansion. I could have servants. But what did he say? The foxes have holes. The birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I came, he says, to serve, not to be served. I came to save sinners. And he did this by becoming obedient to the point of death. And Paul wants us to know that his death, even his death, was the most humiliating death. Hanging naked upon a cross. Being mocked. Humble is the love of God. But in Christ's humiliation comes His exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, for the sake of time, I, wanna, I want to suggest to you to read John 13 today. Read John 13 today. And I want you to see that the love of God is not just humble, but it's hard. It's dirty. What does Jesus do in John 13? He stoops low again, and He washes the feet of the disciples. He washes the feet of the disciples. You know, how that, you know how that story begins? Jesus loved His disciples and He loved them to the end. And the picture that He gives us as He stoops low and washes their dirty feet and I'm sure got dirt upon Himself, it shows us the love of Christ in a small picture pointing to Him taking on our filth upon the cross. The love of God is humble and it is hard. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Did Jesus say, I got this? No, He cried out to the Father. He, do you know in the Garden of Gethsemane He was loving His enemy? Do you know who that was? It was me. And it was you. The love of God isn't a piece of cake. He cried. He anguished 
He said, if there's any other way, Lord, that Your will be done. The love of God is humble and it's hard. And where did it end up? Pilate took and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went on again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. With the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is Aramaic and is called Golgotha, which they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The love of God through Jesus Christ. And instructing the Ephesians, specifically Ephesian husbands, Paul reminded us how we are to love our wives. And he tells us that we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. Very simply put, church, he gave himself for you. He gave Himself for you. Have you gained from His reward? So here we are today. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. This is impossible. Within your own power, by you mustering up the, 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 the love you think you have to, to seek out to love your enemy and pray for those for, who persecute you as human beings, as fallen creatures, you don't want humility. You desire pride. You're self-seeking. And we don't want to do anything that's hard. Nothing. If it's hard, show us another way. So where does this leave us today? Just right where we've been at the cross. At the cross. As John wrote, anyone who does not love does not know God. And you might say, I love my children and my family, but Jesus, when we come back next week, is going to ask you to love your enemy. I want us to take this week to spend time in this passage, Matthew 5, the end of Matthew 5, and consider what this means. To consider love. To consider loving our enemy. To consider those who hate us and persecute us. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Who is your enemy? Think about this week. Do you have someone, and I don't mean, I don't, I'm not talking spiritually. I'm talking about, do you actually have someone that you can point at and go, they are completely against me. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about outside realm ideals of political parties. I'm saying, do you have an enemy that you could even, you could even act in this? So, think about that. We live lives that are sweet. 
the Roman soldiers aren't knocking down our doors taking our sons and daughters. And yet we still have trouble loving the people whom we think has a grudge against us. Or the people that might be a little bit annoying to us. But He calls us to love enemies. So I want us to spend time, I want you to read it this week, more than once. The end of Matthew 5. And remember that in this the love of God was made known to us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live. If you are not stirred up by the love of God, if you're not stirred up by the cross of Christ, it doesn't matter how good a sermon I preach next week about loving your enemies, about praying for those who persecute you, it won't do no good if you don't have the love of God. If you are not moved by the cross of Christ. If you are not stirred up to sing in His presence. I can... We could bring the best preachers in here and they ain't going to convince you to do anything that Jesus says. And so I ask you to look at the cross today and tomorrow and the next day and to ask yourself, do you treasure the cross of Christ? Do you have hope that He rose from the dead? Are you looking forward to a kingdom where $2 million bank accounts mean nothing. Consider that this week. Consider that John is very clear. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. Have you confessed publicly? That you love God? That you've been saved by the cross of Christ? Have you been forgiven? Have you not been forgiven? Turn to the cross in faith. Believe and repent. And be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And turn and live a life loving others. Being compelled by the love of Christ, but it begins with faith and believing and believing not just in I know, but believing that makes you take a step forward and say, I will. I will. I will obey. That is the first step. I know it's hot. I'm sorry. I'm going to just... I want... I do want to read this passage before we leave again. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So can I tell you that that means if you don't, you are not. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, I, you have to hear this last verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, what does that mean? Can you be? No. So what do you need? The love of Christ. The cross of Christ. So be looking at this passage this week and asking yourself, where are you? What do I love? What are my affections for? Let's pray.